Amen. We come this morning to worship a risen king. Jesus is the most fascinating person in history. There are plenty of lists that comes out. I think Barbara Walters used to make the list of who the most fascinating people are. But Jesus is the most fascinating person in all of history. It's impossible to deny his impact on this world. And it's impossible to deny his impact on my life. James Francis summed it up this way. He says he was the child of a peasant woman and worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home, never wrote a book, never held public office. He never went to college. He never set foot in a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He possessed none of the usual traits that accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. In his infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the billows as if on pavement, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. The names of past leaders have long been forgotten. The great men of Greece and Rome are dusty names in the library of time. Scientists, philosophers, kings, generals, and theologians have come and gone, but the name of this man abounds more and more. Time has spread 2,000 years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. Jesus did not come just as to start a movement. He didn't just come preaching a new sermon. Jesus came as king. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at uh, King Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. Mark was not one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. In fact, he was... Uh, translator or interpreter or uh, apprentice of the Apostle Peter. So much of the perspective here, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, is from Peter's perspective. We've seen Jesus as a friend of sinners, Jesus as a miracle worker, King Jesus as healer, as teacher, as leader. And this morning, we come to look at King Jesus, a prophet, or the one who would foretell of his death and foretell of his followers suffering. Last week we were in Mark 8 and we read about Peter's confession where he says you are the Christ. So we learned who Jesus was, we learned why he came, and we learned what he demands from those who would follow him, who would come after him. And as you make your way through the gospel in chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10, Jesus next takes some of his closest disciples up to a mountain where they experience his transfiguration where Jesus kind of sheds the outer shell of flesh and blood of his humanity. And they see Jesus in his divine nature, in all his glory. And after that, he heals a deaf and a mute man uh, who had an unclean spirit. He predicts his death for the second time in chapter 9 of Mark and his resurrection. And then he offers dire warnings and insightful teaching. And that brings us this morning to chapter 10, where we're going to pick up in verse 32. This is as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. 
Just as we're weeks away from Easter, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, which is where we would remember his crucifixion and his resurrection. And it's here that he'll be arrested and he'll be killed. So let me read to you this morning, or read with you, from Mark 10. I'm going to read to begin with verses 32 through 34. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. As King Jesus is going to Jerusalem with his disciples, he prophesies about his death. And as we'll see in a few minutes, he also explained the value of service in his kingdom. And so what I propose to you today is that the road to greatness in God's kingdom is an unexpected path. So how does one achieve greatness in God's kingdom? I think we'll see this morning that the road to greatness in King Jesus' kingdom is paved with suffering, is without honor, and is through service. So the verses that we've just read demonstrate the way that the road Jesus walks is paved with suffering. Verse 32 opens by saying, they were on the road. So of course the they refers to Jesus with his disciples And the way that Mark writes it, it sounds like they were traveling with others as well. Because at one point he pulls his disciples uh, uh, aside to talk to them. And the destination is Jerusalem. I believe this is about 15 miles that they would be traveling. But it's going up. Possibly up to 3,000 foot elevation change in this trip. And when someone is traveling to Jerusalem, we always say that you go up to Jerusalem. So even though they're traveling south... It's not just that they're ascending, but they're going to the city of God, which is always up. So they're traveling, and the terrain is taking them on an incline. Now, we know that Jesus, we know that Jesus knows what to expect in Jerusalem. It's not a surprise what awaits him there. It's not triumph. We remember next week, we'll remember this triumphal entry, but that's not what he was going toward. He explains in verse 33 that this is not the place, I mean, that this, Jerusalem, is the place where he will be betrayed, arrested, accused, tried, rejected, sentenced, mocked, tortured, and ultimately killed. That's where he's headed towards. But does he seem to be hesitant in his trip? Look at verse 32. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Isn't that interesting? He knows where he's headed. And if you knew that, you know, you've had difficult appointments or situations, and you kind of, how am I going to go through with this? But we see that Jesus, either he's walking faster or the disciples and the followers are walking slower. I'm not sure. But he, there is an idea here that there's a degree of, of resolute determination. Eyes like flint. He is headed towards Jerusalem and he's prepared. Jesus wants to make sure that he, those that are with him understand what's waiting for them in Jerusalem. So he tells them what's going to happen. This is where we see Jesus, King Jesus as prophet or the one who could foretell. He is God, which means he knows the end from the beginning. And it is very clear here. Jesus knew all along the plan for him was death. It was not accident. 
He knew what he was walking towards. This is the third time in three chapters that Jesus predicts his own demise and, of course, his resurrection as well. But this one is a little bit more detailed than the others. It carries a little bit more detail. One of the primary differences in this prophecy is that uh, on the other two occasions, he doesn't mention this, that Jesus says that the chief priests and scribes, these are the, uh, the um, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He indicates that they are collude, they're going to collude with the Gentiles, with the Roman authorities. And that's, that's kind of what he mentions is going to happen here. And then he describes this humiliating scene where he would be mocked, he would be spat upon, he would be scourged. So all of a sudden, it's not a sterile environment. It's going to be difficult. And the third key difference we see here is he alludes to a death sentence. It says he'll be condemned to death. So we're not talking about an assassination plot. He knows he's going where the, the leaders will collude and they will take his life. And it all seems to be straightforward for us because we have hindsight, right? We know exactly what he says is precisely what happens. So for us, it's hindsight. But there's a fogginess for the disciples. Because who would walk towards their death? What person who claims to be a king would accept defeat? But Jesus explained it to them nonetheless, even though they couldn't explain, understand. And what we must see is that King Jesus came to suffer and die. That was the plan from the very beginning. And so for us to follow after him requires our own willingness to suffer, to accept suffering. No one likes to suffer, do they? I, I, surely there's no volunteers to say, well, I do. I mean, we, we would all spend all kinds of fortune to escape pain and suffering. Nobody wants to go through with that. We don't seek out pain and suffering. Well, generally speaking, we don't. Sometimes we do, right? Or maybe not we, but some people do. Athletes will beat their bodies because of delayed gratification. I will, I will put myself through significant suffering now because I know what's on the other side of it. So they'll endure for a moment because they know what's coming. The military does the same thing, trains for the battlefield. So they put themselves through a rigorous uh, ordeal so that they're ready for victory on the battlefield. Those who have a mission in mind. And they know there's risk involved, but they say, but it's worth it because if we do, then that might happen. There are a couple of books that I believe should be required reading for the Christian life other than the scriptures. And one of those is Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. It tells the inspiring true story of Jim Elliot, Nick Saint, and the other missionaries on their team who were determined to bring the gospel to the Wadani uh, or the Alka Indians of Ecuador. Um, an oil company, this is several decades ago, 60 years or more, an oil company is moving into an area of Ecuador and uh, it's controlled by a tribe of vicious natives. And as the employees are there, they're getting killed by the, this tribe of Indians. So the, um, the oil company goes to the government and says, you're going to have to do something. And so they have come up with a solution of what they're going to do, which of course is going to be very vicious to take this area of land. Well, in the meantime, Jim Elliott, Nick Saint, and their team decided, let's attempt contact with this tribe. Even though they knew it could bring death and suffering. So long story short, after an initial contact that seemed promising, the five missionaries there by a river get out, and they think they're going to be greeted by these guys. After initial contact, there was reason for them to believe this, but instead they're speared through, they're killed there on the side of this river. 
But they knew that might happen. As a side note, it does open the, the, the door to the gospel moving in uh, for the Wadani Indians. My point is, these men were willing to suffer and even to die because they, they believed the cause was worth it. Bringing the gospel here is worth it. Jesus prophesied about his own death, which did come true. Everything he spoke of actually happened. But his suffering and brutal death was worth it. It was worth going to Jerusalem because it glorified the Father. And for you and me, it paved the way to salvation. You know, when you love someone, you are often willing to accept blows so they don't have to deal with it. I know that's how it is with my kids. I'd much rather me smash my fingers than them. I would, it's like if I could just take away that pain, you know. Or maybe with your spouse and you know somebody's got wor- you know, uh, uh, words on their tongue that will sting. I'd rather them say it to me than to her. I'd say it to me, don't say it to her because I can endure it. I don't want her to suffer through that. I don't want her to deal with that. Well, that's what Jesus did for us. He's our wrath bearer. He took the suffering so we didn't have to. Have you believed on Jesus as Savior to receive forgiveness for your own sins? Because the scripture says we've all sinned and we owe a debt for it. And the debt is a cup of suffering. It is sorrow. It is pain. It is death. That's what the debt is. But the power of Christ's death is harnessed in our faith. When we believe on him and receive him for salvation. Have you received Jesus? The first step of discipleship is declaration. I declare to be a follower of Jesus. Have you believed on Jesus for salvation? He came to rescue us. Jesus suffers for us. And then he calls us to suffer for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of others. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Jesus suffered for you and offers his life as an example. His steps took him to Jerusalem. Are you willing to follow his example? More than likely, it will not lead you to a brutal death. More than likely, it won't be the suffering that some of those that were his followers endured. But are you willing to go? It will always cost you self-sacrifice. It will also always cost you a degree of suffering. Following Jesus means you will sacrifice your own desires and you will invite suffering because you know Jesus has called you to a mission bigger than what we can see around us. One commentator writes, the cross is central to discipleship. But many soft sell or neglect that aspect in favor of a more popular brand of discipleship, one that offers fulfillment and satisfies our material needs. King Jesus wants to meet your need, but your need ultimately is forgiveness. That's what he went to the cross for. He wants to meet your need in that. So greatness in God's kingdom is paved with suffering. King Jesus, our prophet, predicted to his followers that he would suffer and die and that they also uh, would suffer. And he also predicted his own resurrection on the third day. Secondly, the road to greatness in God's kingdom is without honor. Let me read to you verse 35 through 41. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? 
or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. So remember where we are. We are right after the moment where Jesus has said to them what he's going to endure. He's described the mocking, the scourging, the being spat upon. And James and John were there. James and John are followers of Jesus. They're disciples. Brothers who were fishermen at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus called them to come follow him. He named them disciples. He gave them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. We, he's, they're part of the inner circle. In chapter 9, they actually went with Jesus and saw the transfiguration. So these are close followers of Jesus. Jesus describes what he's about to give, and these disciples have the audacity to hand over their shopping list and say, just a couple more things. Just a couple more things. Teacher, they ask, do for us whatever we ask. How gracious is Jesus? He says, what do you want? And they have their big ass grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Even though he's described what's awaiting on them in Jerusalem, they still think he's headed to Jerusalem to be crowned king, to sit on a throne, to rule over his kingdom. And they want the positions of honor, one on the right, one on the left. That's what they're asking for here. It's kind of absurd, isn't it? You're kind of like, who are they? Where did Jesus find these two? You know, I'm sure there were much better folks out there. The funny thing is, they don't even know what they're asking Remember, there was one on Jesus' right and one on Jesus' left in his glory. In Mark 15, verse 27, it says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Do you think that's what they were expecting? Do you think that's what they were asking for? So Jesus points out to them, you, you don't know what you're asking. And he's gracious enough not to rebuke them. To say, guys, get over it, you know. I feel like that's what I would do, you know, because I would say, we, we need two more. Let's get rid of these two, two more, you know, the next two in line. But he's gracious to them. Instead, he asks whether they can drink of his cup and be baptized with his baptism. Of course, he's talking about that cup of suffering, the cup of sorrow. Remember what he asks in Gethsemane? Let this cup pass from me. He says, can y'all really drink from that? He's talking about baptism. It's a baptizo thing. It's not a sprinkling with punishment. It is a uh, uh, submersion into suffering. That's what he's talking about here. And they say, yeah, we can do that. We can drink from that cup. We can be baptized in that manner. But they don't quite get it. But King Jesus, our prophet, he actually declares, yeah, you will. You will drink from this cup. You will be baptized in this way. But he says, I can't give you the seats on the right or left. That's up to the Father is essentially what he's saying. Well, can you imagine being the one of the ten who overhear this? And, and I'm actually convinced they don't overhear it. I think it's probably off to the side, because who would do that out in front of everybody else? So I think they don't hear about it. What I think happened, and of course this is just me imagining, um, is that James came, you know, James or John, whoever's over there, is like, yeah, well, we were talking to Jesus, and well, we're going to drink from his cup. You know, <laughs> he said we could. We get to Jerusalem, we get to drink from his cup. They don't get it. And these guys are thinking, oh, man. They don't think, why would you ask for that? You know what they think? Why didn't I ask first? What can I ask for? Can I have a bite of the bread? You know, or something is what they might ask for. That's why they're indignant. To believe Jesus' kingdom is about honor in a traditional sense is a misunderstanding. 
Can you believe how audacious James and John were to ask this? Let me illustrate, when I was studying this verse, what I thought of. In fact, if you have your phone accessible, you can just pull it out. If you don't, don't dig for it. And I want you to just turn on that camera. I know some of you are already texting or tweeting, so you can just pull it out, turn on the camera, and then there's that flip button where you can turn around and you can see yourself. I want you to look in there. I want you to take a picture. There you go, okay? So you got that picture. That looks weird, but... When I read these verses, this is who I think of. I read myself in James and John's experience here. I might feel indignant, but depending on the moment or the day, I could have asked the same thing. Because I too think the world revolves around me. And I'm looking, how can I receive honor? What can I do to get a special position? John Stott said, our world and even the church is full of Jameses and Johns. Go-getters and status seekers. Hungry for honor and prestige. Measuring life by achievements and everlastingly dreaming of success. So before you feel too indignant over these immature disciples, what if the requests that you make to God were put on paper? What if we got to read what you ask of God? Are your prayers that much more others-centered? Is it that much more God-centered than James and John's requests? David Garland writes, Would we look like shameless gold diggers if our prayer requests were made public? Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not condemning you. Because I don't want you to say, well, I'm afraid to pray now. Because I believe when we pray, we bring our heart to God. We don't try to hide what's there because he already sees it. But I do think that following Jesus is a process of maturing to become more like him. So finally, I can recognize, or I can harness that thought in my mind that the world does not revolve around me, and my prayers can be about other people. My prayers can be about God's kingdom rather than the shameless gold digging. Honor in God's kingdom looks backwards. Those on Christ's right and left were honored with crucifixion. James and John did drink of Jesus' cup. They did receive his baptism, but it was not honorable in human terms. James wanted a crown of glory. Jesus gave him a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted a place of prominence. Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. He wanted to rule. Jesus gave him a sword, but not to wield but to be the instrument of his own execution. Fourteen years after this, James, the first disciple whose life was taken for his faith, he was handed over to King Herod and put to death by a sword, probably beheaded. By most accounts, John died about 98 A.D. He had been tortured, but he survived, and he lived out his remaining days ministering to the church at Ephesus. King Jesus' prophecy about their sharing in his suffering was true. The road to greatness in God's kingdom is paved with suffering, but it comes without honor. Finally, the road to greatness in God's kingdom is through service. Verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be slave of all. Jesus is pointing to the greatness of the folks around them. Herod and Pilate, they exercise all kinds of authority with an iron fist in Caesar's kingdom. They are great in Caesar's kingdom. 
But Jesus offers a contrast here. He says in his kingdom, greatness is demonstrated through service. In other words, don't be like these others. Now there's a path to walk that will lead to power, to success, and to glory in this world. But you can't follow Jesus and walk that path the same way those other folks do. Because the path to greatness in this world is, uh, is, in, is in cross purposes, is with cross purposes with the path to greatness in Jesus' kingdom. You can't do it. In fact, Jesus says the one who is considered first in God's kingdom is the slave to others. So earlier Jesus foretold of his death, and in verse 45 he gives his why. This is the, most, uh, the, the, the greatest difference between his foretelling of his death from the other two occasions. He tells why here. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Here it is, and to give his life a ransom for many. What king comes to serve at the lowest rungs of society? That's the example we have in Jesus. He came to serve, and we get this phrase, to give his life ransom as a ransom for many. Many see this verse as the key verse of the book. In chapters 1 through 10, we see the Son of Man serving. And in chapter 11 through the end, we see the Son of Man being the ransom for the many. Jesus came to give his life, to buy back what was rightfully his. Your life, my life, and the lives of his children. Now we quickly accept the ransom, but are we quick to accept his example of service? To accept Jesus' ransom, we also ought to accept his example of service. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, everyone can be great because anybody can serve. He says, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace. Every one of us can achieve greatness in God's kingdom because each of us can serve. So where are you serving in God's kingdom? Where are you serving the Lord? Kingdom life is about serving. I like to say that everybody who calls this church home ought to have a place where you're serving. doesn't mean that you're out front in some way. It might be in the background, but everybody has a role to play. A place that you're praying or maybe where you're teaching or helping out downstairs. Serving in the room back here as folks from TV call in, encouraging them, praying. Where are you serving? To follow Jesus means you serve. There's another important question. Who are you serving for the sake of the kingdom? Are you looking to be served? Are you looking for people who need that act of service? We've been challenging everyone to answer the question, who's your one? Who's that person around you, your neighbor, coworker, classmate, whoever it might be, that does not know the hope, hope of salvation? Have you written their name down? Are you praying for them? Are you praying for an opportunity to share your faith with them? Are you encouraging them by speaking up what you believe? Are you looking for an opportunity to invite them Easter's two weeks away. Who's your one? The road to greatness in God's kingdom is an unexpected path. To be great in King Jesus' kingdom, you should recognize that the path is paved with suffering, is without honor, and is through serving. Following Jesus is about discipleship, and the first stage of discipleship is declaration. Have you received Jesus as Lord of your life? Have you believed on him for forgiveness and salvation? If not, don't let this day pass you by. Jesus went to the cross. 
He endured all that pain. He died and was resurrected so that you might have the hope of salvation. The second stage of discipleship is development. Are you growing, maturing in the faith? And the third stage of discipleship is deployment. Are you going? Are you sharing? Are you speaking up? Are you serving? Jesus is still calling those who will listen. Come follow me. So will you follow Jesus today? Our Father and God, we thank you so much that when we speak of your words, we know they're true. And when we read about the foretelling of your suffering, your death, and your resurrection, we know it's the critical moment in all of history. So God, I pray that today we would, we would, we would respond to that. We would live in light of that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God, speak into your heart. I hope that you'll respond. We have folks that would love to be able to encourage you, to be able to pray with you. I'm going to be waiting down front. So I'm going to invite you to stand as our choir sings. If God's speaking to you, you respond.